My wife this week sent me something that she read. She went to Southeastern Seminary. Um, so there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, like some of you guys have parents who like went to UNC and NC State. It's kind of like that for our family, but I went to Shepherds and she went to Southeastern. So it's kind of like this healthy, you know, uh, they never played each other in football, so I don't know. What, there's no, there's no really like place to, to you know hash this out and and wear our colors or whatever. But that's okay. Um, but she she did send me something that she was sent from the alumni. Uh, it was just an email telling a story uh, from Southeastern, and it was just so fitting. I decided that I would just tell you a little piece of it. It's it's about two students at Southeastern, uh, but they're not here at Southeastern. They're they're somewhere in a school in the Middle East that has been started. But their names are Hope and Ethan. They're a married couple. They have kids. They were, uh, they were saved in both of them. Well, let me say this. They were both Muslims, okay? They lived in an Islamic country, a closed country as we would call it, where Christianity was not allowed to be openly spoken or, or pressed on other people or um, proselytized is the, is the technical word. And so they both came to faith through siblings or friends and they began to follow Christ. They began to understand, they began to go to, to underground house churches, okay, in these Muslim countries where it was certain that if the authorities found out what they were doing, that there would be persecution, yet they had to do it anyway, right? This is one of those cases where Christians are absolutely not not just are they okay to do what the government says not to do, but they absolutely must do what the government says not to do. And this is happening really all over the world. Uh, well, I shouldn't say all over, but it's happening in many places in the world today. Um, and primarily Muslim countries are, are one place that's, that's happening in the Middle East. And so they, became, they came to faith and they started growing their faith. And eventually they started to uh, host a home church, a house church in their own home. Um, they also became involved in smuggling Bibles to another part of the country. Uh, and... It's interesting as they tell their story, and I might post this article for all of you after this just so you can read the whole thing, but they said that the, the hand of the Lord was just so clearly with them constantly because there, there would be times that there were checkpoints where these officials would be searching everyone's cars, and they made this trip regularly. I think it was about at least once a month, and on these trips, without fail, every time they would get to one of those checkpoints, something would happen to the car in front of them. Or the officer one time was literally tying his shoes. Things like this happened, and they, they got to go through without being searched. And they were packing Bibles okay, um, into another part of the country that just desperately needed them. Well, later on, a couple of years into this, uh, they were, again, a part of a house church that was starting to circulate houses to try to avoid detection. Um, but they were, they were going, I think it was to Ethan's uh, in-laws, Hope's parents' house, and secret police descended on the house as they were about to start and captured Ethan and several other leaders took them to prison and for about two weeks Hope didn't hear anything and then after the two week mark he was allowed to call her and all of it he really could do was just cry with her over the phone he had been basically um, just subjected to just brutal treatment and psychological uh, torture of some kind and so they weren't able to communicate too much then, and then it happened for another month that he was put in isolation. So he wasn't able to have any contact for an entire month. After this month, he was finally released. He came back to his family and his own kids. They had kids at this point. 
Uh, they actually didn't even recognize him. And this is, this is happening, like, this was out in the last few years this happened, right? But he, so he came back and his kids didn't even, even recognize him after, after the treatment that he'd, he'd suffered, okay? And my, we, we are in First Peter where, where he is talking about suffering. And as where we are, who we are, it can be tough sometimes to relate to that. And I just want to say this is actually happening and there's more, well, I'm going to finish the story at the end a little bit, but what's crazy is that what Peter's going to say about suffering in our passage here is that suffering can actually be good. And it isn't to say it can be good, but in the hands of God, it is good. All right. And so what Peter's going to try and do in this passage is actually change our view of suffering. So we say not only, okay, God, I, I will accept it, but God, I will embrace it. That's, that's the view that Peter wants us to take uh, with suffering. Looks like our, our slides are, are a no-go. Is that pretty much the case? I don't know uh, the ins and the outs of this. And that's okay if we don't have that. Go ahead and, and get your Bibles out. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. I was going to have my, my Bible on my computer, but I might grab the good old physical copy. And this is apparently the will of the Lord here. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And we're going to take a very large section tonight, and so we're going to only be able to... Uh, oh, I got the wrong end. I don't like HDMI cables that have an end that you're supposed to go into. Uh, okay, what I was saying is that this is a... This is a relatively long section. And so we are going to really just skim the surface of it and try and hit the mountaintops of what Peter is saying, okay? Um, so I'm a little thrown. I'll blame the HDMI cable. So we're gonna, we're gonna do this in the, in the form of, of three questions, okay? The first question is, why should I live a holy life? In First Peter, he has, been, he has been really explaining and urging them to live a holy life. And in the sections we've been doing, he's been walking through just different sections of the church and saying, okay, wives, you guys do this. Husbands, you do this. Servants, you do this. All of you be subject to the government. And now he's going to turn to all of them again in verse 8. And so I'm just going to read there. It says, finally, all of you have... Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so I think that he is now going to turn and start to address this question, which is, Okay, Peter, why should I live this holy life? He kind of describes the holy life in this, this series of you're going to have unity and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. And you're not going to be retaliating against those who are persecuting you, but you're actually going to bless them. And then he gives the reason. And we always want to pay attention to these reason clauses. And he says, for to this you were called that, that is for the purpose that you may obtain a blessing. So this is one of those interesting times in the Bible. We think that it's wrong to do anything out of kind of a, a motivation of self-fulfillment. Well, here we have it. Peter is actually saying, you are to bless others in the midst of persecution and live this holy life for the purpose of obtaining 
a blessing, of being blessed, okay? And interestingly, he goes to Psalm 34. And Psalm 34, in this section, basically gives us a description of the quote-unquote good life, okay? Here's the good life. Now, I want you guys to have, first, before we even enter into it, think of what you kind of picture as the good life. Get an image in your head, okay? What is, what's the good life? I kind of picture a guy in a truck with a Coca-Cola. I don't know. Apparently, America's done its job. Okay. Uh, what's the good life? What is it, and you can search your own heart, what is it you're seeking when it comes to a good life? I like how um, in the psalm, he defines the good life like this. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. He's not characterizing that as a bad thing. Because he knows that every person is probably going to say, yep, that's me. I really do desire to, A, love life. And to love life means to regard life as something desirable to live. There's, there's a lot of people today who, who actually struggle just with that, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe you, you struggle to see your life as something that's really desirable to even live. But it means that you wake up in the morning and you are excited that God has given you life and the life that you live. You love life. And whoever desires not just to love life, but also to see good days, this is kind of the idea that at the end of the day, you're saying, wow, that was, that was a full day. That was what I was made to do. I am satisfied with the life I'm living. I'm fulfilled. I don't know how many of you are seeking a fulfilled life. I know I am, right? It's something that we want. So whoever loves or desires to love life and see good days. Now Peter is going to move into his description of it. But to go back to your little mental image, I think it's, it's easy for us to think, okay, what is the good life? And essentially conclude, well, it is to find the right spouse. Or I'm going to have a good life. I'm going to have that feeling of, fulfillment at the end of the day when I have a family of my own or when I have gotten to this point in my career and I've accomplished this much. Maybe it's when I have gotten my degree and I don't have to write papers anymore or whatever it is for you. We, we tend to fill in the blank there with these temporal things. What is it that you are defining as the good life and how are you pursuing it, right? So for the psalmist, he says... Essentially, what looks like, be a good person at first. If you read that, okay, what do you do if you desire this? Keep his tongue from evil. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Basically, speak the truth. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That means seek to glorify God in everything that you're doing. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I like the idea there that not only... Do you seek peace and then once you find it, you're done? No, it's like this thing that's constantly evading you and you're constantly chasing it. So this is this description of a righteous person constantly pursuing peace. And then verse 12 is really the reason that this is the good life. We can think of all of these things as kind of the path, but it's not necessarily the reason. It's not the thing that makes it a good life. So the question to you is what makes a good life a good life? Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. 
The good life is to live with nothing between you and God. The good life is to live in fellowship with God. And the description it gives here is his eyes are on them and his ear is open to them. His eye is on the righteous. That means if you have this relationship with God that's being described, he is protecting you on, on all sides. So that even if you don't see what's coming at you, the evil that's going to try and come against you, the Lord is protecting you. He has your good in mind. His hand is on you and around you. And his ear is open to their cry. That means he hears you and he acts on your behalf. This, to the psalmist, is the definition of the good life. And so we can often just say uh, and and, and show in our life that we are pursuing something that's not not truly what, what he would define as good. He finishes by saying, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That phrase means that the Lord has determined what he's going to do with those people. To set your face on something is to basically choose to do something with them. And it doesn't finish it here for one reason or another. But if you read on in Psalm 34, it's to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And so before we are in Christ, we are those who do evil. And the face of the Lord is against us to cut off the memory of us from the earth. But when we have placed our faith in Christ, we become this new creation that the Lord sees, that he hears, that he protects, that he works on their behalf. And that's the definition of a good life here. So the question to you is, again, is that how you define the good life? Because it's going to become really important when life does not actually treat you the way that you want it to treat you. When you come into contact with suffering. I think Stephen Davies said something to that effect recently that the reason that we react so negatively to suffering is because we're essentially not ready for it because we expected something different. So are you, are you ready? Um, I don't think I'm going to half slide. So that first question was, why should I live a holy life? And the answer to that question is that the good life is not just doing what's right, but it's actually living in the light of God's face. The second question that's going to be asked as we, as we move on to verse uh, 13 is, what if I do the right thing and I suffer for it? Right, so here's where suffering is going to come into the picture. So why should I live a holy life? Well, it's because living a holy life is all about living in the light of God's face. Okay, well, what if, what if that, that life looks horrible? Is that, does that still count? Can you still call that blessed? Remember, the, the language that Peter used was, you should bless others that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, well then how does this look like a blessing if I'm being thrown in jail and I am being persecuted, I am being tortured? That, I think, is the question that, that Peter's going to try to answer. So now we're in verse 13. He says, he starts with this principle. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's good? This is essentially a principle, kind of like in Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. There's this principle in life, which is if you live a good life, a good life in the sense of a, an upright life, and you live according to wisdom, generally speaking, you're going to be like really blessed. You're going you're gonna to have the things that we generally think of. Like you're going to probably uh, have a family. Many people get to have a family. Many people get really wealthy when they just follow the basic principles of wisdom, right? It's a basic 
overarching principle, but does that not mean, does that mean that there's no exceptions? Well, no. Well, that's kind of what Peter's saying here. First of all, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? Generally speaking, you're going to win friends. You're not going to win enemies by doing what's good constantly. But then he gives that but. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And so the second question, what if I do the right thing and suffer for it? The answer to that question is even better. Even better. You're going to have an even better life in some sense. There's, there's so much blessing to be had through what you're describing as suffering for righteousness' sake. So now this is, uh, I, it should be somewhat stunning. It certainly will be stunning if we actually believe it and live it out. The next thing that Peter does is says, okay, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean when I say that suffering can be even better, that suffering can be a road to blessing. And it's kind of like this is Peter's guide to blessed suffering. That's what I would call it. All right. And I pretty much have three, three items here under this list of Peter's guide to blessed suffering. Okay. Number one is he says, don't fear what people fear and fear God instead. So if we read right here, uh, verse, still in verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, what's interesting here is, is my translation says, have no fear of them. Um, the Greek is really interesting. It says, the fear of them, don't fear. And this is actually a quotation from Isaiah 8. And in that quote, it's very clear that what's being said is actually, don't fear the things that they fear. Don't fear the stuff that these Israelites are fearing. And the context there in Isaiah is really interesting. God is talking to Isaiah, and he's promising the Assyrian invasion of Israel. And he's saying, look, they are totally confused about what actually to fear. They're afraid of Assyria, and for that reason, I'm going to bring Assyria on them. You don't fear what they fear. Fear God. If they have feared God, then can we just stop with the, with the screen, or is that just going to keep going? I see your guys' faces like flashing blue, and I was like super distracted. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I told a lot of I thought. Here we go. So Isaiah 8. He was saying, look, the, all of Israel is fearing the, the wrong thing. If they had feared God to begin with, then, then they wouldn't need to be afraid of, of anything else. That's the quotation. He's actually quoting something right here when he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That is directly from Isaiah 8. And that's really interesting because that is something that has been a theme that Peter has been developing this entire letter, actually. And we, we saw it in this household code. He said to the wives, when your husbands see your fear, fear of God, when they see that, it's going to stun them because you're not afraid of them. Because he finishes, if you remember, his instruction to the wives with, and don't fear anything that's frightening. This is the same kind of instruction. He says, Fear God, right? Honor the emperor. Honor all. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. He's the only one in that list back in chapter 2 that was to be feared. And so we as people understand there's actually nothing that we are to be afraid of. There's, there's, there's no suffering. There's no persecution. There's no loss that we are to be afraid of. Think in your mind of like, what is the, 
I don't know, what, what's the thing that if you start to think about it, might keep you up at night? That you'd be afraid of losing? For me, it's, it's usually something physical happening to me. Like, I can't imagine someone, say, gouging out my eyes. It sounds awful, right? I mean, okay, that's just, <laughs> just made a face like, oh, wow, you went there. But that's happened, right? We're told that prophets were sawn in two, put into a tree and, and cut in half, okay? There's, there's a lot of horrible things that could happen to you and me if something changes in this country or if you go somewhere else for the Lord, which I hope that some of you do. And so we need to actually think this through. Are you afraid? And what Peter is saying is, don't be afraid of that, but in your heart, honor Christ alone is holy, right? And that is going to color everything else in your life. If you fear God, you have nothing else to be afraid of. And that's, that's amazing for, for me. <laughs> Funny story. Um, I don't know, a couple of you guys were at Crew this last Thursday, okay? Um, I have a, a small issue, and by that I mean a relatively large issue, with fear of man, where I can just be intimidated by people. Um, and I don't like to ask favors, because I'm afraid I'm just going to be told, no, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know what I'm afraid of, okay? But there's a guy, leader of crew, his name's Todd. He's a really great guy. Like, there's no reason to be afraid of Todd, right? But I needed to call Todd and just say, hey, would it be okay if I said hi to crew and just explained who I was? And um, I, I recited what I was going to say for like 20 minutes before calling him. And at the end of that conversation, by the way, he said yes before I even like got half the words out of my mouth. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. That's fine. But at the end of that, I was like sweating through my shirt. Okay. It was, it was somewhat embarrassing. I was like, Paul, like, come on, man. This is ridiculous. I mean, I was praying. I was really praying, right? And then the Lord gave me that opportunity. It was awesome. I mean, I just said, hey, I'm Paul. It was very, very simple. But... I can so easily just be prone to this fear of people. And, and, and I'm going to act in such a way that I think is going to please them or get something out of them. Or I'm afraid that they're going to think that I want to get something out of them because I really do. But I'm really not trying to like, take advantage of them. Whatever, right? So I just, I just have this internal dialogue. That might not be you. That's what I would call fear of man. And it's crippling and it's not honoring to God. It's not. Because what that says is, in that moment, when I'm fearing Todd, <laughs> if he ever hears this talk, which I don't know why he would, but I hope he laughs. Um, if I'm fearing Todd, it means that in that sense, in that moment, in that example, I'm, I'm not fearing or honoring Christ. There's something I'm not believing about Jesus in that moment that I really should. And this is, is per Peter's first point about suffering. He says, first of all, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't fear what they fear because they don't have Christ. They're confused. They think they can intimidate you. And they can't. That goes, by the way, for you who are in classes with professors who you know are opposed to the message of the gospel. And you are intimidated. You're intimidated to, to speak up and, and say anything because you know it might actually affect your grades. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid of them. You have no reason to be afraid of them. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy. So that's the, that's the first thing. And by the way, why would this, I think it's actually pretty evident, this is an example of true blessing. What, what Peter's trying to get at is suffering can actually show us true blessing. 
And, and suffering is going to lead us and sanctify us into a, a place where we really do only fear God. And that's true freedom. How blessed is that? The second thing he's going to say, so first, don't fear what they fear. Fear God. The second one is be ready to share your hope. Part of, of blessing is, to be, is the ability to bless others. And Christ was just the, the perfect example of that. And then Peter's going to point to Christ in just a minute. But Jesus said, and we have record of this through actually Paul in Acts. It said, he said, it's better to give than to receive. Do you ever wonder why, why God is such a giving God? He's constantly giving. It's because he understands to the nth degree that giving is actually better than receiving. I was trying to explain this to Thomas today. I was like, Thomas, we're going to unload the dishwasher. That's his chore. He has one chore. All right. And I recently thought, okay, well, we got sick recently with kind of a stomach bug. And I realized maybe it's because Thomas is unloading our silverware. And we trust him to wash his own hands right now. Okay, so that might have been the, the cause. Um, okay, yeah, I think we should think about that. <laughs> uh, and half the time he gets to give them to Eden and she drops up. Okay, this is totally a sidebar. And the, the point is I was trying to say, buddy, it's better to give than to receive. It's better to unload these dishes than to play. <laughs> he's like, I want to go play. <laughs> That's what I want to do. But I was like, no, it really is better. And in that moment, I was kind of grumpy because it's early in the morning. I'm trying to force my son to serve. And of course, like, it's just this moment when I'm t- speaking to him and I find myself speaking to myself. You know, like, now, Paul, it's so much better to give than to receive. It just is. And that's, I think, where Peter's headed with this next piece. As he says, don't be afraid of them, but instead be prepared. Be prepared to bless them in return. So not only are you not going to revile in return, you're not going to be retaliating in any way when you are persecuted, but actually prepare yourself to bless them. And the primary way you're going to do that is by being ready to explain why you're not afraid. You're going to explain this hope that characterizes Christians and sets us apart. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Your conscience is clear that you are not being motivated uh, by, by any kind of retaliation. But you're actually being motivated by love. So that when you are slandered, those who revile that very good behavior that you're doing in Christ, they, they, they may be put to shame. And I think the implication is there, similar to earlier when others, they see your good works and they glorify God on the day of visitation. They're put to shame and they have an opportunity to come to themselves and realize what's happening. Heard a really crazy story. Um, There was a, just a couple years ago, I think Jacob, you might remember this. um, We we had a guest speaker who, who grew up struggling with homosexual feelings and then came to the Lord in college and still struggled with this, still battled with this, but is a, became a born-again believer and started trusting. And, and then he began a ministry eventually just speaking about this phenomenon and, and, and what it means to follow the Lord even when you have struggled with that kind of struggle. And beautiful ministry. I got to talk to him recently because I was thinking about bringing him uh, again, but a couple of years ago, there was an event on campus, and it kind of blew up in, in, a, in a way that he wasn't even, he was like, you know, this wasn't 
ideal. Um, there were protesters outside. Do you remember this, Jacob? Were you around? So um, it got the attention of the press. It got the attention of the police. It got the attention of the LGBTQ plus community. They were out there with picketing signs. They were they actually so they decided to invite them in to what they were doing. This presentation that he was doing, and they were expecting you know hate speech. And they had counselors stationed outside to help the people as they came out. Um, you know, having been hated on or something like that, which of course was like the opposite of what he did. Well, there was one picketer, one protester standing in the back who just grabbed a sign and came along with them, a very similar story to his. And as he was standing there, he realized that he was on the wrong side. He saw the hatred coming from those with the signs. And he saw the grace and compassion and love that was just constantly being emitted from the stage. And he, he just said to himself, I am on the wrong side. And so he went away. He didn't join the, I guess they had like a, an after party picketing thing. He, he didn't join that. He, uh, he went home. He got on his knees. He prayed. And then eventually he reached out to the speaker and, and got reconnected through that to his old pastor. And he basically began to follow the Lord. What a beautiful picture of what Peter's talking about here, right? They're going to revile your good conduct, but then they're going to be ashamed. You're going to say, I'm on the wrong side. But that's, that's only if, that's only if we do exactly what Peter's instructing us to do, which is to constantly have this attitude, which was Christ's, which is, I will not retaliate. I will seek their good no matter what, which is easy to say, and I think it's probably much more difficult to actually live out. If you've ever been sinned against, and maybe sinned against in a really personal way, it can be very difficult to seek the good of the person who has hurt you. And that is exactly what Peter's calling us to do. But just think of the blessing. Again, that's Peter's point. Suffering can result in so much blessing. Blessing for you and blessing for others when you're ready. When you're ready. So when you are wronged and when you suffer, the question is, are you poised to complain or are you poised to take advantage of the opportunity and to recognize what God's doing? The third point I think Peter is saying here is in verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I think the main point is you're going to suffer either way, do good. But sandwiched in there is that if that should be God's will, and the implication is, it is. If you're suffering for good, then that's God's will. And that might sound harsh, but I think, at least in my experience, in the midst of some kind of challenge or suffering, God's sovereignty is actually an incredible encouragement. It can be one of those encouraging things one of those encouraging doctrines to truly understand is that when you are suffering and you're having one of your worst days ever, that God is in control and he's going to use it for your good. That is a warm hug when you are having a, an awful, awful day. Because that is just this reassurance that, yes, God will work everything for the good of those who love him. Yes. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how we not also with him 
graciously give us all things. Yes, God is not withholding from me. God is sovereign. God is in control. God will use this. There's purpose. So Peter's saying, recognize God's sovereignty. That's that third point. Now, just a, re- a quick review. We said, why should I live a holy life and bless other people? It's because the good life is living in the light of God's countenance. Number two, what if I do the right thing and I suffer for it? The answer to that is, that's even better. And the third question, well, that's not even a question. I phrase it like this, prove it. And Peter's going to be like, cool. And Peter's response is, Jesus. Okay, Look at Jesus. If you want me to prove this, then take a look at your Savior. Because if, if you want me to prove that suffering can bring blessing, I have an example for you. And, I, and now, we don't have time for me to go into the depths of, of this passage. And frankly, I don't know if you guys have read this passage, but it can be pretty confusing on, on the first read. Um, so I'm just going to give you a couple of principles, I think, that this is... That it's trying to communicate. So in, 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 vain, in the vein of Peter's thought here, he's going to prove that suffering brings blessing. And so what he's going to show is that first, that Jesus suffered in such a godly and holy way. And he's going to show that this brought incredible blessing both to us and to him. That's his overarching point. Suffering, blessing, look at Jesus. And so it, he starts with, this suffering of Jesus, that he suffered deeply and he suffered righteously, right? So verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In the sense, he did what Peter is now encouraging them to do. He only feared God. He did not fear what people fear. And he expressed this love for the very people that were persecuting him that Peter's encouraging us to have. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring, catch this, us to God. What, 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 what Peter suddenly does with that us is he puts us into the story, right? Suddenly we find ourselves in, in, in the scriptures. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Now I think what he's doing by that is he's, he's, he's saying, if you are, are struggling to love the people persecuting you, recognize that. Jesus suffered under your persecution, in a sense, and he loved you. There's a, a song lyric, I think you guys probably know it, in How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It says, Behold a man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed, what? I hear my mocking voice. I think that's, that's right. In a sense, not, none of us, we're, we're literally the person to nail Jesus to the cross, And yet when we sin, we throw our lot in with the very people who did that. And so Peter's saying, remember what you've been forgiven of. Jesus says the same thing when he's encouraging us to forgive others. And I think in order for us to obtain this attitude toward those who persecute us, we have to first understand how much we've been forgiven of. We have to understand that we were the persecutors when we rejected God. So Jesus suffered. That's the first point. He suffered for the unrighteous, which we can throw ourselves in with them. And he also, what is the result of this suffering? 
He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which, and this is saying, in this spirit. Okay, now we get into an interpretive puzzle. And rather than try to explain exactly how I got to my interpretation, I'm going to do my very best just to explain how I understand it. Okay? And I don't know, how many of you guys had C groups this week? Okay, decent number. How many of you guys read that extra PDF on the different views? Zero. Awesome. Okay, cool. I'm not judging you guys, all right? I think I said in the email, it's a little dense. And you guys are like... Nope. Okay. Uh, not for me. So I'm, I'm curious what you guys kind of landed on, and I'm totally okay with you guys disagreeing with me on this. Okay. But in, in short, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read through it and explain how I, how I got to what I got to. So in which is, is saying, in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I believe that those spirits are demonic spirits who were at large in the days of Noah. Okay, and there are some extra biblical sources that really show, not necessarily that exactly what was happening, but at least that when Peter says this to his audience in the Jewish world, they would have pictured this. They would have said, oh yeah, we've heard these stories about these, these spirits. And there are some references to this in the, Noah, in, in the story of Noah and the ark. Okay? So these are demonic spirits who were evidently put into prison. And what he's proclaiming is not the gospel message. Sometimes we can say, oh, this is an example of Jesus going and presenting the gospel to everyone who hasn't heard yet or something like that. I don't think that's what's happening. This is proclaiming victory over these spirits. And this will make the most sense, I think, when we get to the very end. The spirits in prison because they formally didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So he's talking about Noah and he's saying, now you remember the story of Noah, how eight people got on the ark. God patiently waited for that ark to be completed so that he could save them. Now, baptism corresponds to this, that is the water. And I think by extension, this entire story is saying baptism is similar to this story in the same way that Noah and his family were saved through this, the waters of God's wrath. So now you, when you go down into the waters of baptism and you come out on the other side, resurrected, following Jesus' death, and resurrection. You're going through water. So it's this picture that is very similar to Noah being saved from God's wrath. And then Peter reminds them, this is not a removal of dirt. It's not like you're just being washed. You weren't taking a bath, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is when we come to faith, we are appealing to God and saying, God, would you cleanse my sin? That's, that's the point. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we only went down into the water, there's no coming up out of it. If Jesus only went down into the grave, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, he was raised. So it's through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And then here is why another reason why I think those spirits earlier were not human spirits, but they were demonic. Because the final point Peter wants to make is that these angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Usually when you see angels, authorities, powers, he's talking about angelic hosts in the angelic realm, in the spiritual realm. So Peter's main point through this is that Jesus dominated through suffering. Jesus accomplished two primary things. One, he accomplished your salvation. And two, he accomplished domination of every spiritual force so that at the end of his suffering, he saved you and he got enthroned above everybody else. So if you want to argue about whether suffering can bring blessing, you have to look at the example of Jesus and say, okay, God uses that. 
and he's your Lord. He's the one who you're following. He's the one who you are imitating. Jesus said like this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so that's why I think just about every apostle in the New Testament and Jesus remind us that suffering is necessary. We should expect it as Christians. So those three questions I think that this passage answers. First one is, why should I live a holy life? Because the good life is when we live in fellowship with God. And then the second question, what if I do the right thing and I suffer for it? Even better. God can use that. And then prove it. Jesus. Uh, I want to return just to that story of Hope and Ethan because they made a statement that just fits so perfectly with this. It, it kind of closed that article. And they were just talking about their lives. And that they, are, they are now still persecuted. Um, they, they live as refugees, but uh, it wrote, written in the article said that Ethan, over the last eight years, has been beaten three times just for continuing to share his faith in this other country, not their original country, but still the authorities are after them. And so they are, they're not out of the weeds by any means, but they've been connected with Southeastern and they're able to grow in their faith and get official training. And they're just incredibly grateful for that. And so this is what they said. At points, we've thought our life was done and our story was finished. You can imagine the points that they might have thought that. But we are still here serving him and learning more about him. And then catch this last thing. It is unimaginable how God has blessed us. And we might sit thinking, how could you say that? But that's the truth of what God does through suffering. It's unimaginable how God has blessed us. Isn't that awesome? All right, I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight and the chance to, to learn from your word. Lord, thank you for this glorious truth that you bless through suffering, and I pray, Lord, that you prepare us in the posture of our hearts to, to be ready to suffer and to take it with joy, understanding, Lord, what you are able to do through it. Lord, I pray that we would have that attitude, whether it's when we are interacting with someone who's opposed to us because of our beliefs, or it's just that everyday kind of suffering that happens one way or another a result of challenges in school or difficulties with relationships or even physical ailments or family members who are struggling or we suffer in many ways and I trust that you use every bit of it and so Lord would you encourage the hearts of those who are in here who are in the midst of suffering Lord would you show them compassion and love would you encourage their hearts and Lord, you prepare us to trust you in those situations, to fear no one but you, to bless others, and to understand your sovereignty. Lord, we're so thankful uh, for your son, for the example he gave in, in saving us. We pray all this in the name, in his name, Jesus.